what what I wanted to do is not so much. I want to kind of approach it from the, from the other way around. Normally, we say, okay, we're flawed, and we recognize that we're flawed, and we want to come to grips with that. We want to perfect ourselves. You know, the the mission of man. Uh, is to we arrive imperfect and to return to our creator perfect. In fact, the founder of the Muslim movement, that was his slogan. He says, why are we living? We're living to fix what we have not yet fixed. But what I want to do, so normally so we start here, let's start with the problems and let's kind of build upon them a solution. But what's the result what do we look like when we're done? What's this perfect human? And then kind of work backwards to see how they got there. I want to kind of take this other approach. I think it's, it's, it's a different angle that we're not used to doing when talking about Muster so much. Uh, but I do think that it's very informative to look at the finished product or at least the various stages along the way towards perfection. You know, the greatest man that ever lived is Moshe. So if you analyze Moshe's character and his behavior and his persona, you'll see what it means a perfect person or as perfect as possible, or as perfect as any human has ever been. And then you can say, okay, well, how did he get there? What were the steps he took to get there? And how do we follow in his footsteps? I gave this example today in a morning class that I gave. If you have something really complicated uh, that has, uh, it's like you go to Ikea, right? You go to Ikea and you buy a bed or, or, or a, a drawer or cabinets, and uh, there's 150 parts in the box, and you have no idea how to assemble it. Uh, but there's always this little, little pamphlet or stuff, some sorts with numbers and everything. You lay everything out, and everything is numbered, and everything is, looks different. You see the pictures, the figure one, figure two, and you slowly build it together, right? Uh, that's what we're trying to do with Busser. Like we are, we're a mess. We're disassembled, so to speak. Our greatness is disassembled. And we want to take it piece by piece to try to build ourselves to become great, like Moshe. Of course, Moshe is the ultimate, but to become as great as we can become. And uh, what would you do with the Ikea drawers without the manufacturer's instructions? You'd be lost. Maybe you'd build drawers, uh, but it might look like a desk. Or it might look like a stool. Or you don't know what it might end up with if you just take the parts and you build it. It might be totally uh, shaky. It might, it might not be really the way it's supposed to be. It might, it's not going to be optimized. And we have the manufacturer's instructions for us, for humans. You know, God created us. We're complex and we're flawed. And that is something that all humans recognize. And... Torah, well, that's that pamphlet that comes along with us, right? And, and Musser is the steel of taking the Torah and following the instructions and understanding what goes where and what, and then hopefully the end is where our finished product. I was saying it in the context of um, we have the red heifer. The red heifer, that's the fixing of the golden calf. You got the golden calf right after Sinai, a small little cow, right? And that was a big sin. And then how do you fix the small cow with a big cow, red cow? That's what Rashi says. Uh, the idea is, is that with the golden calf, all the sources almost universally agree that whatever the intention of the golden calf it was noble. The intention was noble. They didn't set out to say, let's build an, an idol. They said, let's try to figure out how to make a replacement for Moshe. But the difference is, they didn't consult the manufacturer's instructions. They said, I'm going to try to figure this out myself. And all the commentators explain what their calculations was and Ramban writes that they were... Uh, they, they, they were trying to capture, they were trying to capture Moshe because Moshe was a leader and a leader of someone who gives criticism and criticism on the left side of God, the left side of God is, a, they had all these calculations and they were trying to build the proverbial drawer without the instructions and they resulted in something entirely different and entirely in opposition to what they intended to do. And that's the golden calf. Comes along the red heifer. And you have instructions, but 
the instructions don't make any sense. And you can't see possibly how this is going to lead to anything. Because it's only God's instructions. It doesn't make sense to the human mind. And therefore, this is the fix, the fix of the golden calf where we tried to say we're going to do the instructions ourselves and we went awry, is to say we're going to follow God's instructions even though it doesn't make any sense to us. And I think it's a good way of thinking about Musser. You know, Musser is we are trying to figure out how to make ourselves better, how to make ourselves great again, how to make ourselves perfect, how to become close to God. These are all terminologies of the same idea. And that is an assumption that we're imperfect, a drive and a yearning, and maybe even a mandate or a destiny to become great. That's what Musser is. And everything between that and the whole process and everything that is an obstacle and impediment and all that is part of the wisdom of Musser to try to navigate. And I think it's worthwhile to kind of, if you're in like this road, this maze, uh, uh, way, way of the just or way of the upright or path of the just, he writes that that we're, in life we're trying to navigate this maze, you know, and you have a maze, there's a center, you're trying to get to the center, but, you know, you, you, try, you, you don't know how to, where to go. You have to kind of navigate it, and that's what you have the guide, so to speak. Every once in a while, I think it's worthwhile to kind of pop up and look around to kind of assess, of course, yourself, where you are along this journey, but also assess what the destination is. And kind of, you know, it's like when you drive to Canada, we're planning to do that in a couple of weeks, God willing. And like 1,600 miles, we did 40. <laughs> How many more miles do you have left? Let's kind of look at your phone to see like the GPS. How many more miles do you have to, and you're thinking about the destination and, and you recognize that, okay, I made a little bit of progress. I'm halfway there. I'm still trying. You keep, you keep your eye on the destination. So what's the destination of, of, uh, of the Musarite? Uh, I want to I wanna frame it first. And I think... Um, the, what I'm saying now is applicable to any Musser and indeed any growth of Torah-oriented growth. We're broken. We're imperfect. We need hell. However you want to say, we're flawed. Why are we flawed? More specifically, what about ourselves is flawed? Where in ourselves does the flaws lie? So there's an amazing insight critical insight that Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato Ramchal, he writes in his book called Das Tevunos. If you want to look at it, it's number 70. And what he says is like this, and this is counterintuitive because it's, a, it's the opposite of what we think. Of course, the goal, we know that we have a body and a soul, and the goal and the future and the past and our real identity is the soul. True. And our body, well, that's temporary. You know, that's, so to speak, the impediment. That's the conflict. That's the resistance. That's the friction in life. The fact that your soul and your body do not coincide. They don't fuse well. There's, not, there, 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 there's disharmony between the two. Says Ramchal, the objective, no, the destiny of the goal is the soul. The soul is what began the soul's, your soul's ancient. It's been around since the time, six days of creation. Uh, your soul's going to outlast you in this life. Your soul is really who you are. Now, in this life, in this interim, this 70, 80, 90, 100, 120 years that we're here, our soul gets married, gets morphed, gets fused with a body. And that creates tons of conflict. Because your body, your soul, each one of them are jockeying for identity, for position in who you are. So your soul, of course, these are, op- these are total opposites, body and soul, total opposites in every way. It's like you take the magnets and you turn them upside down so they push each other away. That's what we're like. It's just the Almighty takes these two opposite sides of the magnet, crunches them together, binds them in a way they can't escape, and forces them to live with each other. So Ramchal says something very fascinating. He says that you are your soul. In life here, you, the soul is something else is bound to it. But the objective of this world is your body. 
And this sounds very counterintuitive. Well, I'll explain this. Your soul is perfect. Or at least it begins life as being perfect. And then it's placed in this close confines with your, with your body. The objective of Torah is to allow the soul to overpower the body and to uplift the body and to create parity between body and soul so that your body becomes like a soul. That's the critical part. It's to take the body and make the body no different than the soul and make the body not to kind of flip around that magnet and create unity between these erstwhile opposites. So for example, Moshe, right? Moshe, we're told, Moshe did not die. That's what the verse, that's what the sages tell us. Now, well, the verse says that Moshe did die, right? So what does it mean that Moshe didn't die? What it means is that death is separation of body and soul. So the body goes down to the ground where it sources. The soul goes up to the heaven where it sources. So by definition, death is two opposites being disentangled, being separated. But if the body is like the soul, they're not opposites, there's nothing to separate. Moshe was someone who was at the top level. He was one who actually took his body and uplifted it and made it more and more and more soul-like. So while he might have started off life, he was 50% body, 50% soul. He made his soul, his body soul-like, and then he pushed it to 51% soul and 52% soul, and eventually it was 100% soul. And there's no comfort. Body and soul are the same thing. So the idea is, is that there's malleability. We're dynamic. We're changing. The question is, which direction are we changing? Are we taking our soul and using that to influence our body and making our body holy and making it like our soul? Or, God forbid, are we allowing our body to infiltrate and defile and lower our soul, make our soul more body-like? That's the conflict according to Ramchal, and there's many sources. I, 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 there's tons of sources to, to prove this point. The idea is that we have this conflict. Our body and our soul are at war. Musar is, is a tool, or it's actually, more precisely, it's a skill in this battle. And Torah, well, that's the manual. That's the blueprint for how to be successful. So what I want to do today, I want to look at a few really important sources. Well, of course, all sources from the Talmud, they're all important sources, but really targeted sources that um, address this point on a very deep level. Because it shows us what does someone look like. Like if you, if you were to have Moshe here, and what kind of answers would he give you to the questions? Or what, how does he see the world differently based upon his changed reality? Right? Suppose you could isolate your soul. Suppose you could interview your soul. What would it say? How, how does its thinking differ than our thinking? It's a strange thing, right? We, we know that our soul, we have a soul, sure, uh, but what, what is the soul? How does it operate? What, what, is it happy with me or, or not? Is, it, is, it, is, it, is my brain the soul? Is what I think? Is that what my soul thinks? Uh, these are kind of tough questions to ask. Suppose you could isolate your soul and kind of remove it and kind of look at it from without and interview it and see how it sees the world, it would be very fascinating because that, that, that's what your goal is. Your goal is to not create, to, to remove all the conflict in your body and soul. So I want to share with you a few sources. Uh, the first one is from the Talmud in the book of Gittin. The book of Gittin talks about divorce. The word get is a document of divorce. But the Talmud also has two or three pages, right in the middle of the book, on page 55, 56, 57, that talk about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Temple number two, that is, uh, by the Romans, and by Titus and Vespasian in the year 70 of the Common Era. Um, So it's interesting because we actually have the Talmud and we have the historical Documentation that's, very, that's corroborating of it. So who was the general overseeing the siege of Jerusalem? 
the siege of Jerusalem began, I'm pretty sure, the year 68, according to most sources. The war began in 66, but the siege began in 68. And the general was someone by the name of Vespasian. Now, in the year 69, one year into the siege, there was a, uh, it's, the year 69 is called the year of the four emperors, because every emperor they put up in Rome died or was stabbed by his brother-in-law, the way it worked in Rome, right? And they couldn't, they couldn't have anyone that was lasting. So the last of those four was Vespasian, because they had stabbed the guy who was newly anointed emperor, and they said, okay, well, we need someone to come fill the shoes, and the Senate in Rome, voted for Vespasian, who was then the general of the Roman army. So he took his army and he gave it over to his son, Titus, and he went back to Rome and Titus finished up the job. And then when Vespasian died, Titus became emperor. And I think it was in 81. So he was, a, and he was the emperor for uh, 12 years or so. Now, the Talmud says something very surprising about this event. The rabbi in Jerusalem, his name was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, one of the very famous characters of the time. Now, in Jerusalem, there was a civil war going on. So it's one of the saddest times in history. There's a civil war going on inside Jerusalem where all the different factions of Jews are killing each other, but they have these massive walls that actually are keeping the enemy from without out. So you have, and the problem is that they're killing themselves inside, and there's a group of Jews who want to fight the Romans, so they burn down all the food storages. So people inside are starving to death. And those that go out, they're crucified, three to five hundred a day. Really sad time in, in Jewish history. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, he was the head of the, 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 what's called the Pharisees in Jerusalem. And he goes out, and he fakes his own death. And the Romans would allow people to bury their dead outside the city. So he fakes his death, and he's alive in the box, and his students carry him out as if he's dead. And they smuggle him through the wall, through the doors, and he jumps out, goes into the Roman camp, and he meets Vespasian. And Talmud describes that meeting. And it starts off, he tells him, Peace be unto you, O king. Now, Vespasian's still a general. So Vespasian tells him, I'm going to kill you. Because it's against the law to call someone, unless they're the emperor, you can't call him the emperor, you can't call him king. Uh, and he tells him, well, if you're not the emperor, you're very swiftly going to become the emperor. Why? And he quotes a verse in scripture. The verse says, Vehalavanon Ba'adir Yipol. And Lebanon will fall in the hands of the mighty. But what does this mean, Lebanon will fall in the hands of the mighty? It means Lebanon is a euphemism for the temple. And the mighty is a euphemism for the king. So Rabbi Yochanan Menzakai, when he sees the general who is overseeing the destruction of the temple, he says, peace be, to you, be, be unto you, O king. Vespasian is not impressed. As they're talking, a messenger runs in from Rome and tells Vespasian the emperor died and the Senate nominated you. And he is so shaken up by this experience. This old rabbi comes and tells him you're going to be king. And right away he gets informed he's going to be king. He grants him a few wishes. And instead of saying spare Jerusalem, he says a few really strange requests. He says, first of all, save the family of Rabbi Gamliel, the family of the Nasi, the descendants of Hillel, save that family. Find a doctor for Rabbi Tzadok. There was, a, there was an old rabbi that was very ill. Give him a doctor. And thirdly, he told him, there is a little town outside of Jerusalem called Yavne. Yavne was where the rabbis are going. The rabbis went. Spare that town. And he agreed to those requests, and of course, the rest is history. Uh, Vespasian went back to, back to Rome. His son Titus 
destroyed the temple on Tishabav, of course, and all the slaughter and all the disaster, and we know the story, right? And but Vespasian kept his word. He spared the family of Rabbi Gamliel, the family of Hillel. He brought a doctor for Rabbi Tzadok, and he spared the city of Yavna. That's the story. And of course, it's germane to the subject matter of that Gemara because it's talking about the whole, it's a whole description, a whole Gemara about this point, this time period in Jewish history. Fine. What does that do with our subject? So my grandfather of blessed memory, he says, if you, do, you want to know what does it mean for someone to have had this transformation where the soul is now the dominant player in their lives, the Musur, the Torah changed them. And what would their soul say? How does their soul see the world? Look at Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Specifically, when he walks into the Roman camp, what does he see? He sees the Romans on the soul, right? And he sees a general. And the Roman general, I'm sure they had a distinctive clothing or pins on their, on their lapel or um, stars. They had a way of looking. His physical eyeballs saw a general. His body saw a general. What did his soul see? His soul saw a king. Why? Because how does his soul see the world? His soul sees the world through the prism of Torah. And what does the Torah say? The Torah says, well, Jerusalem will fall in the hands of the mighty. Obviously, his soul sees a king. His soul doesn't care the fact what kind of hat the guy is wearing. doesn't matter what kind of hat he's wearing. This is a king masquerading as a general. And Rabbi Yochanan, his interaction with the world was dominated by his soul. And therefore, when he says, I, I see a king, what, that guy doesn't look like, I don't care what he's wearing. He could be wearing a clown hat. He's still a king. This is an example of what does it mean where someone has the perspective of their soul and that the reality, the spiritual reality is actually overrides, it supplants the physical reality. His eyeballs, his physical eyeballs, sure, they show him things. But you know what? You could go to the movies and your physical eyeballs could show you the Golden Gate Bridge collapsing. And you know it's fake. Why? You saw it. It was clear. It was 3D. You know it's fake. You know, if you and I would see Vespasian, what would we see? We'd see a general, right? Because that's what our body sees and our body is much more dominant than our soul. But I'd say to you, wait a minute, isn't there a verse in scripture somewhere that says, you're like, what? There's this verse in scripture that says, well, they look at the guy's a general, right? To us, our reality is our body's reality. Here we see an example of someone who their reality was not what their body saw, was what their soul saw, because they have become more soul than body. Yes, of course, he still had a body. And of course, his eyeballs still operated, clearly. But the fact that your eyes show you something, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. What's true is what you see, what you, how, your truth, what, what do you determine is real, what's not real? If your soul is in control, the soul will say, okay, what does the Torah say about this? Or how does the soul see it? It's a whole different organism. It's a whole different perspective on the world achieved by soul. And, that's, and he became someone whose soul became his reality. By default, right, it's like the pole position, right? Who has pole position? Your body has pole position. In, in, order for you, in order for you to become like Rabbi Yochum it's a non, it's a war. It's, you have to be, it's nonstop. The body is much stronger. The body is much more dominant. Uh, because if the, if the body was not more dominant, the soul would, would waltz its way to victory. It wouldn't be a conflict. It's only a conflict because the body has such a head start. The soul is much more powerful after all, right? The soul, think about it. The soul is made by God uh, from under. The, it's much more powerful. It's been around for so much longer. It, 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 it's not a fair fight. The only reason why it's fair is because the body has such a huge head start. Every child, right? A child is total body. Total. Their identity is entirely more for that. Yes, of course, a child is angelic and they're sweet and they're delicious and, and they don't sin. They haven't sinned. Yes, of course. But... The body says, feed me, I'm hungry, right? It's the middle of the night, you wake up your mom, right? She hasn't slept all, she hasn't slept all night, you, they don't care. 
body means it's it's selfishness, right? It's it's a total focus on the needs of your body above everything else. If it doesn't matter if there's a plane full of strangers that are uh, that are just shooting darts at your mom on the airplane because you you don't care, you're upset, your stomach hurts a little bit. I don't care. I'm raising hell, right? That's what I'm doing. That that's the baby. Maybe it's entirely skewed that way. And therefore, because the body is such a head start, there's this whole challenge to get there. Now, of course, great giants like Rabbi Yochum they got there. But everyone is judged on this particular note. Like, this, this is how we're judged. How much of the way did we get there? How much did we assert our soul? How much did we nourish our soul? Did we empower our soul? Did we identify with our soul? Did we move in that direction? Did we progress in that direction? Or did we just allow it? To, and you see adults. There's, there's some of the adults that are very, very old, but they're, they're, slight, they're basically grown children. They're still, they're still living with their body. So it's not invariably going to happen. It's only going to happen if you choose to make it happen. And there's many, many, many different gradients along this, uh, along this spectrum. When we say body, we don't mean that... Rabbi Yochum Zakeh was 120 years old when he died. He didn't neglect his body. But he, did it, he didn't prioritize his body, but he used his body. And the mitzvah is to take care of your body, right? But the question is, did you identify as a body? No. Right, I, I, I could have a car that I polish and take care of, right? right? But it's not my identity. It's not who I am. I'm, I am me. I have a car, but I like to take care of my car. The, the car is there to service me. Right? My body, well, that's something that I have. I better take care of it. It's a gift that I got from God. You got to polish it, take care of it. Hillel famously went to the bathhouse. Right? Hillel, who was the teacher of Rabbi Yochum Zakai. He went to the bathhouse and the students said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to do a mitzvah. Well, what, what's this mitzvah? Can I join? He says, well, the mitzvah is going, I'm going to take a shower. You're going to take a shower? That's not a, how's that a mitzvah? He says, well, I am polishing, I am tending to the gift that God gave me. How is that not a mitzvah? Of course it's a mitzvah. That doesn't mean that he was body identity. No. Specifically because he was someone who was so much of a soul, he viewed his body as something that services him. It's there to help him. Who's him? The soul. And therefore, polishing it is not taking care of yourself. It's taking care of something that you have. And that's a mitzvah. As opposed to someone who says, I'm a body. I'm identifying as a body. Then when they're polishing their body, so to speak, that's an act of selfishness. They're just acting for themselves. Because themselves is their body. I want to share with you another story with Rabbi Yochum Zakai. And then we kind of, we're going to take it one step backwards, closer to us. And we're going to move backwards on his deathbed. And this is remarkable because you listen to this story and you right away see two levels. And it, it's so clear. It's amazing how the architects of the Talmud put this in there. It's not immediately evident, but once you point it out, it's, it's glaring. That they said, okay, this is Rabbi Yochum Zakkai and we've seen him elsewhere in the Talmud and here's one step below that. And this is from the book of Brachos. Brachos is the book in the Talmud that talks about Brachos, blessings. But it's also, you know, there's only 64 pages in the book of Brachos, but it has more words than any other book in all of Talmud. Even more words than the book of Baba Basra that has 176 verse, uh, pages. Because every one of the pages are really big, full of words. And on page 28, it describes what happened to Rabbi Yochum on his deathbed. Deathbed. You could be able to see right away how this is the same Rabbi Yochanan Mazakai who several, about 10 years earlier, was talking to Vespasian. When Rabbi Yochanan, I'm going to give you direct translation here. When Rabbi Yochanan Mazakai was sick, his students came to visit him. Once he saw his students, he started to cry. The students said to him, the light of Israel the right hand, the strong hammer. It's like, you're the leader of the Jewish people. Why are you crying? So he tells him, well, if I was being brought to a king of flesh and blood who is here today, but tomorrow is in the grave, if he gets angry at me, he won't get angry at me forever. If he punishes me, if he imprisons me, it won't be imprisonment forever. If he kills me, it won't be a death forever. 
And you know what? I could bribe him with money and I could cajole him with words. Still, if I was being brought to judge judgment in front of a king, I'd be quivering. I'd be crying. Now that they're bringing me before the king of kings, the holy one, blesses he, who is alive forever and ever. If he gets angry at me, it lasts forever. If he imprisons me, it lasts forever. If he kills me, it's forever. And I can't cajole him with words or bribe him with money. Should I not cry? Right away we see this is the exact same Rabbi Yochanan Zakai of Vespasian. He's saying, I'm terrified because what's my reality? My reality is I'm going to speak to God. And I'm going to speak to God. And what's a God? Well, that's a king that's much more powerful, much more terrifying than a human king. Therefore, what do I do? I start crying. I'm terrified. Why am I terrified? Well, they said to him, well, why are you terrified? And he's like, doesn't it make sense why I'm terrified? Suppose I was going to a human king. I'd be crying. Well, now I'm going to a much more powerful king. The consequences are much greater all the more so, I should cry. So we see that his reality, indeed, he was much more real with his soul because your soul will be more terrified of God and your body is not so terrified of God. Your body is terrified of a human king. So what he's saying is, well, if, if I was going before a human king, if my body was steered, I'd cry. How much more so if my soul is steered because my soul is much more dominant, I'm going to cry. But listen to this answer at the ending of the story. They said to him, our teacher, bless us. It's a tradition. When your teacher is about to die or your parents about to die, or, right? We see it in the Torah all the time. Moshe is about to die. He blesses the Jewish people. Jacob is about to die. He blesses the Jewish people. Isaac is going to die. He blesses. He thinks it's Esau, but really it's Jacob. So they say to him, give us a blessing. And he tells them something, and they're totally flummoxed by what he says. They're flabbergasted. They can't believe that he said this. He says to them, You hear what someone may, build, may, may be the will of God. That the fear of heaven for you should be like the fear of man. You should be as scared of God as you are from your neighbor. They said to his students say to him, What? We should be much more scared of God than we are of our fellow man. So he says, no, if only you should be as steered of God as you are of man. Why? When someone's about to sin, he looks to and fro, is anyone watching? And then he sins. That's how the Gemara ends. What's really apparent is that what Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai is telling his students is that I want you to be one level down from me. Me, I'm more so, my soul is more powerful than my body. And therefore, when I see the general, I don't really see a general, I see a king. And when I see these two paths, one leading to the human king and one to the almighty, I'm much more secure. This one's more real. My soul's more real to me. Right? And therefore, what do I see? What's my interaction? What's my vision? My vision is the soul. I start crying. His spiritual reality was greater than his physical reality. What does he tell his students? Your fear of God should be like your fear of man. At least become soul-like enough to be parody, to have parody that your soul should be as powerful as your body. I'm not demanding you reach my level where the soul was more dominant. At least it should be equal. Your fear of God should be no less than your fear of man. Your interaction with your body, well, your body sees man. Your body doesn't see God. Only your soul sees God. At least accord God the same treatment that you accord your neighbor, i.e., it's real when you see your neighbor, because your body says so. Let it be at least also real when you see God, when your soul, uh, what your soul sees. This is not intellectual. And the, you'll see that his students don't get it, right? 
his students don't get what he says. First, he, he gives them a blessing, and his students don't understand. It's like, what? What are you saying to us? And then he clarifies his point. So why don't his students get it? If we get it, why don't his students get it? The answer is, is that intellectually, of course, God, everyone's more scared of God than they are of the fellow man. If I asked anyone on the street, suppose they believe in God, are you more scared of God or are you more scared of your fellow man? Of course, God. God's much more powerful. That's what we would say intellectually. What he's saying is, yes, of course we're more scared of God than we are of man. Even simpletons like us, we would say that, and we would know that. What he's saying is living it. How do we live in a way that it's real, it's our reality, that we're actually as scared of God as we are of our fellow man? I gave an example. Suppose you were by a stoplight or a red light, and there's a cop car right behind you. Do you know anyone in the world that would just drive right through? No one would do that. Why? Because it's it's right there. Like it's 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 you know you know where you're you're doing something right. Well, make your fear of God as real as if there's a cop car behind you, like a spiritual cop car behind you. To do that would require that you never sin, right? You would never sin like that. You would never sin. So what he's telling them, never sin. That's what he's telling them. Which is a Whoa, that's, that, that's, that's a lot to ask, right? We see kind of the difference. It's, it's a tangible, it's not just fear of God, fear of man. Uh, no, Made, but if you have that same level of trepidation of God as you have of a cop car behind you that your body has, then you reach this level. Of course, that's a high level to ask. Once you have that perspective of what Rabbi Yochum and Zakai and his students were like, and these are the same era of, of rabbis that wrote down the Talmud, so a lot of teachings in the Talmud make a ton of sense in this light. The Talmud, for example, says like this. A person does not sin unless they went temporarily insane. That's what the Gemara says in the book of Sota. Now, of course, to us, it doesn't, that doesn't make any sense, right? There's a lot of people, oh, everyone we know sins. So is everyone insane? Doesn't make any sense. But let me ask you a different question. Let's turn the question back at us. Suppose you see someone who's by a red light and there's a cop right behind him and he sees him and he drives anyhow. What would you say about him? That's temporary insanity. Because the rabbis of the Talmud, they were students of Rabbi Akiva of Rabbi Yochanan Zakai. And therefore, they actually reached the level where the, the soul and the body and the soul's perspective and the body perspective were at parity. How could anyone sin? It's, it's absolute. It has to be temporary insanity or else it doesn't make any sense. No one else would do that. And that, now that makes a ton of sense. Like, yes, of course, for us, we sin willy-nilly because we don't have that same perspective. We haven't changed ourselves. Our body is in such control. You know, it's like, um, uh, it's like uh, you, you, if the body's, who's in the driver's seat, right? So the body, in our life, and that's the way it is by default, and of course, it's a whole lifetime to try to change it. Our body's in the driver's seat and our soul's in the back seat. Or perhaps our soul is thrashing about in the trunk, right? It's not even clear a soul has a say at all. It's a lot to get the God, the soul out of the trunk, and to pull away the car, or at least to get like those driver's instruction cars where there's two wheels, one for the guy on the right, one on the left, at least they're both driving the car together. Yeah, that's what he's telling him. Pull the soul out of the back of the trunk, bring him into the front seat, and at least if he doesn't wrestle control out of the hands of the wheel out of the hands of the body, at least put him there in the front seat with another wheel and let them both control at least that. And you know what? If your soul is in control, if, if it's driving that proverbial car, it's never going to go through. It'll just keep its foot on the brake. It'll never go through that red light, so to speak, with the cop behind you with God right there watching over you. Your fear of man is, should be, a, your fear of God should be like your fear of man. 
if there was a human cop behind you, you wouldn't do it? Why if there's a God cop behind you? Not If God is watching, right? What does the verse say? You should know what's above you. Know from where you came. Know where you're going, right? Know what's above you, a seeing eye. And all your words are being written down. Like, like we see, like, that's what the soul says. God is watching every move. And everything that we do, we have to give an accounting and a reckoning for, right? There's a cop behind us that is watching everything that we do. If our soul is in the driver's seat, even if it's not the only driver, it's one of the drivers, we're not going to sin. I think that maybe if Rabbi Yochanan Mazakai told his students, that's beyond you, or at least first get to where there's parity, then for us, well, maybe we, the best we can hope for is to get parity. But let me tell you a story. In, I think it was 1941. There was a great European rabbi. He was the rabbi of the town in Brisk, in Lithuania, from a very famous rabbinical family called the Salavechik family. But he was um, the, one of the biggest rabbis in Europe. Incredible genius, as they all are. And he was escaping the Holocaust, and he ended up in Turkey with some of his family. Some of his family died in the Holocaust and some of his family survived. They moved to Israel. He died in 1959 in Israel. So he was by a very wealthy Turkish Jew who was hosting him. He on his way to Israel. I don't know the details. I remember the details of the story. But regardless, this rabbi was very fastidious about law, about the law of Torah, halacha. And story goes that uh, the only thing he was willing to eat that didn't have any questions whatsoever about any halachic questions was rice. And so he gave him a meal of rice. Sure. Fine. Finishes the meal. And after the meal, his host tells him, oh, actually, I just realized there is a slight halachic problem with the rice. I, he, that's all he said. And the rabbi takes his finger, stitches down his throat, all over the guy's carpet. That's the story. So now to us, we, we listen to the story. We listen to the story, we're like, that is horrifying. <laughs> right? That's what we think. The guy welcomed into his house, and he gave him food, and now he's throwing up all over his carpet. But the guy did not get upset at him. And I want to I try to understand, let's try to understand this, question, this story before we comment on it. This rabbi was a great holy tzaddik. When he, he was someone whose soul was in the driver's seat, at least on par, there were two drivers, the soul was a driver. Suppose I told you, oh, that drink that you had five minutes ago, there was actually poison in it. If you don't throw up right now, you're going to die in an hour, right? You'd go, ah, and you wouldn't run to the bathroom. You'd try to, you'd, you'd take the microphone and shove it down your throat, right? So the reason why we laugh at the story, oh, that's outrageous, is because our soul's all the way back, kicking up, trying to get out, trying to breathe some air. It's in the trunk. He doesn't, it's no say. And therefore, how do we see the story? We see like, the guy ate rice. The rice is the same rice as any other rice. Maybe it wasn't kosher. Okay, fine. Big deal, right? That, that's what we see. He sees, I just ate poison. Because how does he see the world? He sees the world the way his soul sees the world. And his soul's like, you just ate poison. Quickly, stick your finger. It's a knee-jerk. Knee-jerk reaction. Stick your finger down the throat and, sp- and, and throw it out. And, spill, and, 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 and throw it up. I want to share one more story with this. Even closer to modern times. A story that was experienced by me. Personal, so it's a true story. I know that for a fact because I was there. 2005. My grandfather, which you've heard a lot, a lot, a lot about, a remarkable, remarkable Titanic Musser master and Torah scholar and religious leader and, and, and intellect and, and author, an incredible character. He was sick. He was 90 years old, and he was, he was very sick. He was in his home, uh, but he had a very, very hard time getting around, taking care of stuff. Uh, and he would wake up at night, and he was very uncomfortable and a lot of pain. So what the family decided to do was to have a grand 
a grandson, a different grandson every night to stay with him at night. So that way my grandmother could get some, uh, some sleep in the other room. And someone will be there and it's not, she doesn't be up every night. She's also old, you know, thank God she's still around. She's uh, a bit time into her 90s, still trucking along, Holocaust survivor and all. And uh, sharp like attack, remarkable. And um, so it's uh, let her get her sleep and we'll alternate every night to be someone else. That was that, that, that was the plan. And I and I did it for about a couple of months. He died in Pesach time. Uh, and therefore, it was uh, like about a month or two before he died, I was there one night. And I was terrified. I was scared that I would, I would sleep in and I wouldn't hear him making – right. So I, I, I stayed up the whole night basically. And uh, I walked into his library. I was reading some stuff from like the forbidden section of the library – there was like one bookshelf that he wanted people to look at because it was Kabbalah books. I was, no, it was two in the morning. There was no one around. <laughs> Don't judge me. I was 18, right? Don't judge me, please. And uh, so, and then it was, it was three in the morning and my grandfather wakes up and he sits up. It was hard to sit up. I helped him sit up and he, he says, I want to wash hands. I want to get up, uh, you know, wash hands in the morning. I would bring him a cup. I said, Saba, it's three in the morning. We don't get up for another four hours, seven o'clock. There's a, they had a minion in his house, so he would have built Davin in his house. We don't get up. It's, it's four hours, four and a half hours until we're supposed to Davin. We're about to sleep. Uh, okay, so he went back to sleep. Half hour later, he wakes up again. Uh, is it time to Davin yet? It's time, it's time to daven. Time to pray. And I said to him, I said, Sabbath, it's 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 three thirty in the morning. You know, it's it's not time to pray yet. I'll wait. I'll make sure you're up for time to pray. And at four o'clock, he wakes up again. It's the time to pray yet. I said to him, I said, Sabbath, it's only four in the morning. It's not. It's not time to pray. He's like, I'm getting up. Anyhow, I'll wait. So he gets up. And he goes to the bathroom. It was a whole process. He gets to wash his hands and gets dressed, fully dressed. And he's sitting in his house, in his home, on a bench with his hands and fists on his knees, all dressed with his hat, all ready to go. It's four in the morning, four thirty in the morning. He's waiting to pray, which is going to start in three hours. And he's sitting there, and he sat there, I think, for an hour, just waiting, eager. And then he was so tired, he actually fell asleep. And ironically, he actually missed the davening. He missed the prayer. He slept through it. But to me, I remember this was a different experience. I've never seen anything like this before. A man to whom prayer really felt like he was talking to God. We pray. We say words. Right? Who's praying? It's our body, right? Our body's controlling who we are. So we say words and it's, it's words, it's in Hebrew, even if it's not in Hebrew, it's, it's, it's an exercise that's really dry for us. But what is prayer? It's talking to God, creator of heaven and earth, who has more, all the power in the world comes from him, the only thing that's real in the world. If you could talk to the president tomorrow morning at 7.30, what time would you wake up? If you could talk to someone really important, right? Yeah. Who's your hero? If you go talk to Mickey Mantle tomorrow at seven at seven thirty, you'd probably wake up beforehand. Yeah. I know. I was thinking, you know, when uh, when I have to wake up really early, sometimes I wake up too early because I'm uh, you're kind of half up, right? You don't, you don't sleep well. You're you're half up. You wake up early. You check the clock. It's only two in the morning. It feels like it's eight, right? If you were actually talking to a king or to a president that was real to you, you'd you'd wake up early. Now, why don't we wake up early so eager to pray? Because we don't feel like we're talking. You know why? Because our soul is still in the back of the trunk. And it has no say in the matter, and therefore it doesn't dominate our perspective. It's not how we see the world. My grandfather, blessed memory, his soul had a bitch seat at the table. And therefore he was so excited. He's like a kid the day before going to Disneyland. You can't, how could you sleep? You're up at four in the morning, dress. You know the kids, the kids the day before a trip? 
My goodness, they're up so early. All dressed, ready to go, like it's five in the morning. And then, ironically, they're so tired by the trip because they were, they've been up, right? They're so excited. He was, I saw someone. I saw this. This is me. I saw, he was so excited to pray. Like I've never seen an adult excited for anything like that in my life. That's what it looks like. And that's the goal. The goal is to get there. And Musser, if when you were doing Musser, we're studying Musser, we have to keep an eye on that destination, right? That's what we're trying to get. We're trying to, it's a tool to empower our soul, to awaken our soul, to perfect our body, to uplift our body, and to collectively bring ourselves closer to this ultimate destiny, the ultimate hope and legacy of these great achievements that we could have. Yes, we probably cannot get to a level where our soul can wrestle control away from our body. Probably not. Probably not. And you know what? What does it look like someone who's a prophet? You know what a prophet is? A prophet is someone who gets the soul out of the trunk and puts them in the driver's seat and actually takes his leg and opens the door and kicks the body outside to the curb and keeps it driving himself. And that soul, well, now there's just a soul there you can talk to God. That, of course, is way beyond us. It's hard for us to stop thinking about the body in a, in a real way. And, of course, it's delusional, right? Because your, your soul is around forever, right? Your body, what, right? Even, your, even at present time, your cells are right now killing each other, regenerating. Right? Your body's not real. It's not, it's, what is your body? It's a vessel for your soul. But somehow, and we all know what's the destiny of the body. It's not going to last for that long. It's starting to wither away. We know that, but we get corrupted, thanks to the Yetzirah, to think that our body is us. And it should make the decisions without stopping to say, well, what if I brought my soul into this equation? What would his perspective be? Wouldn't that be interesting to kind of find out what that perspective would be? That's what the objective of Torah is, to awaken and empower the soul, and the Musr is a tool to get there. I think it's really critical. We study a lot of Musr, and we do a lot kind of those steps and I think it's important for us every once in a while to stop and to zoom out and say, okay, wh- where are we trying to take those steps to? What's the goal? What is the ultimate goal of all of Torah? All of the, what, what, what's it really doing for us? It's changing who we are. It's fundamentally changing us and creating a reality that is dominated, hopefully, more and more increasingly progressively by our soul.